0: Welcome to Drug Safety Matters, a podcast by Uppsala Monitoring Centre, where we explore current issues in pharmacovigilance and patient safety. Medicines are manufactured with extraordinary precision, so that each and every pill, capsule, or vial is as identical as can be. The same, however, cannot be said for us humans. People can vary greatly in their response to medicines, and one of the reasons for it is their genes. I'm your host, Federica Santoro, and my guest today is my colleague Chun Ying medical doctor and senior pharmacovigilance expert at Uppsala Monitoring Centre. Ying has long been fascinated by pharmacogenomics, the science of how genetic variation influences the response to drugs. So I took the opportunity to ask her about past, present and future developments in the field. I hope you'll enjoy our conversation. Hi, Ying, and welcome to Drug Safety Matters. Now, you should know that on this podcast, we love words that are difficult to pronounce. And usually it's pharmacovigilance we deal with. But for today's episode, we've opted for another tongue twister pharmacogenomics. What is it? Well,
1: pharmacogenomics is the study of the role of the genome in drug response. You may have heard several definitions. One of them is called pharmacogenetics, which is a study of individual variation in DNA sequence related to drug disposition, metabolism, or drug action that can influence drug response. The other definition is pharmacogenomics, which is defined more broadly as the application of genomic technologies to elucidate disease susceptibility, drug discovery, pharmacological function, drug disposition, and therapeutic response. But these terms are usually used interchangeably. So if you look um, at its name, which is the combination of a pharmacol, meaning pharmacology, and genomics, which is the study of the genetic material, such as DNA. So there are two main areas in pharmacology. One is the drug action, so-called pharmacodynamics, which is about what the drug does for a human body. And another is drug concentration, or that affects the amount of uh, drugs in the body after drug intake, so-called pharmacokinetics, which is about absorption, distribution, metabolism and excretion of the drugs from the body. And it's what the uh, human body does for the drug. And both pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics can be
0: affected by genes. Okay, so we're basically studying people's genetic makeup and trying to understand how that affects people's response to drugs. But how do you do that exactly? And why does it matter for pharmacovigilance? Well, pharmacogenomics analyzes how
1: the genetic makeup, the genetic material of a person affects the response to drugs, so to say, yeah, the pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics. In order to find the association between a genomic material and the drug response, you may, for example, want to compare the genome of a patient with the adverse drug reaction with those without adverse drug reaction and to find a method to test this. One of the methods is a genotype to use genomic biomarkers. And um, there are biomarkers for drug-metabolizing enzyme genes or to test the risk status of a person, for example, a person with uh, immune-related adverse drug reactions like the HLA, human leukocyte antigen complex. Assignment of whether a person has a specific Genetic variant or not is what a pharmacogenomic is doing. And you collect DNA from blood or saliva or other material from the body and you look at the genes directly. But the predictability may vary. For the drug metabolising enzyme, people with the same genotype could have variations due to other factors. For example, the organ function, other medications that are used at the same time. It can predict drug response in ideal situation or to different extent, but it's not always 100%. For the phenotype, that is the appearance of observable nature of an individual. For example, enzyme activity, drug levels after drug intake, and it's uh, one method for phenotyping is the measure of uh, drug and its metabolites and calculate the ratio. The higher the metabolic ratio is, the lower the enzyme activity will be. So for drug metabolizing enzyme, the genotyping or phenotyping testing, we divide people into different groups according to, for example, the capacity to um, break down the medicine. You may have... Um, a normal metabolism called extensive metabolizes. You may have a poor metabolizes, that person have uh, both genes, one gene from a mother, one gene from a father. Both genes are variants. And you may have um, intermediate metabolism, that is a heterozygote, or carrying genes for lower enzyme activity. And then you have the ultra-rapid metabolism, that is a gene duplication you have uh, sometimes multiple gene duplication. So your question on why does it matter for pharmacovigilance? You know, we want to maximize drug response and minimize adverse events. And this can be done by using the individual's genetic profile, by using genotyping or phenotyping method to select right patients for right disease and right drug with the right dose. I can tell you a story how this can be done. Many years ago, a woman with a depression was prescribed a normal dose of antidepressant nortriptyline, 100 to 150 mg per day. There was no effect. The dose was increased to 300 mg per day and still had very low drug levels in the body. It was questioned whether the patient has taken the drug the patient was found then to be an ultra-rapid metabolizer and had to be treated with 500 mg daily nortriptyline, which is a three to five times the recommended dose to attain therapeutic blood levels. So pharmacovigilance is about drug safety, it's about adverse drug effect related to the collection, detection, assessment, monitoring and prevention of adverse drug reactions. And this includes lack of efficacy as well for severe diseases.
0: But where did it all begin? I'd like to take a little walk down memory lane with you and talk a little bit about the origins of the science. So this idea that one could predict people's response to drugs by looking at their genes, when did that develop and how?
1: Well, You'll find variability and outliers. When you gave the same dose of a drug to different people, the response will be different, either due to variability at the target of the drug, example, the receptors, or due to variability in the amount of active substance in the body. This is one thing. Another thing is that people will have adverse drug reactions of the target, not related to the drug effect but may be related to immune system. And the concept that genetic factors can be responsible for different drug response in some patients evolved in 1950s. At that time, it was demonstrated that inherited deficiency of the enzyme called glucose-6-phosphate dehydrogenase, G6PD, was responsible for the severe adverse reaction hemolysis, which is a red blood cell breakdown leading to anemia, red blood cell level, uh, in some patients after taking the malaria drug primaquine. Primaquine is an effective drug, but due to the very serious adverse reaction, the drug is not recommended for use in people with a deficiency with this enzyme G6PD. And also in 1970s, another important enzyme was discovered to be polymorphic with genetic variant, which is a Debrisequin dehydrogenase, the enzyme that breaks down the drug molecule Debrisequin. Do you want me to tell you a story? Do that. A group of researchers in the UK studied Debrisequin, the antihypertensive drug. A few percent of the healthy volunteers, including the researchers and professor themselves, developed overdose reaction, despite the same dose was used for everyone. It was found that these overdosed people with very low blood pressure had a very high blood concentration of debrisequine and a very low concentration of the metabolites, 4-hydroxydebrisequine. And this led to the discovery of the genetic variants, or polymorphism, in a very important drug metabolizing enzyme, now called CYP2D6. And that metabolizes a large amount of clinically commonly used medicines. So this is about
0: variability and outliers. And do we have an idea of how many adverse drug reactions have a genetic basis? Good question, but
1: hard to answer. Depending on the drug and also on ethnic factors, the genetic factors have been suggested to account for 20 to 95% of the variability in drug disposition, leading to a so-called type A adverse drug reaction, which is related to the pharmacology. But for the type B serious ADRs, uh, that might be immunological reactions. It's more rare because if um, very serious ADRs are common, the drug may not have been approved but these type B reactions, they may be more dramatic with a serious consequence for the patient and also for the drug as well. Because people are more worried about serious reactions and may cause media attention as well and even leading to drug withdrawal from
0: a market. Now, the next question comes actually from one of our listeners because we ask people on social media to send us questions on pharmacogenomics for you. So here's the first one. Nicole wonders, does pharmacogenomics translate to a reduced burden of side effects? So in other words, what have been some of the successes so far?
1: Well, pharmacogenomics, with the help of using genomic biomarker, Could do several things. One is um, it could identify drugs with a large variability in patients taking the drug and provide right recommendations on the use of the product with appropriate dosing recommendations. And a good example is a recent uh, approved drug called Eliglustat, which is indicated in a rare disease. And this drug should be dosed according to genotype of a CYP2D6. And the second thing the pharmacogenomic biomarker use could be applied to screen patients before starting treatment It could identify patients at risk uh, for lack of efficacy or at-risk status for toxicity and prevent or minimize the risk. For example, change the drug or drug therapy regimen and one example is the anti-HIV drug Abacavir. Uh, in patients who carry a special gene variant called HLA-B5701, these people will be at high risk for hypersensitivity. And due to the development of this biomarker, this association of this um, HLA allele and the hypersensitivity, the drug could be saved by giving the drug only to people who are not carrier of this virus and also during treatment can explain why the drugs not work uh, in some patients and to give advice to monitor the patients and um, to give um, another drug for example and um, to choose right doses sometimes. Um, Sometimes it's important uh, with interethnic differences. One example is carbamazepine. It's an old drug. It's um, commonly used for epileptic patients. But this drug has a very serious adverse drug reaction in the skin. And this is particularly important for Chinese patients. There is an HLA allele. If you have this allele, your risk for Steven Johnson disease, for example, will be increased many times. And the labelling was changed to screen Chinese ancestry patients. And um, by avoiding cabamaspine in the carry of this allele, it was shown the usefulness of this biomarker in a large study where no cases of a serious adverse skin reaction was found. So this is one of the very good examples of the usefulness of the genomic biomarker in a special ethnic population. And another example that is useful is for the CYP2D6 enzyme, as we mentioned, where haloperidol is an anti-schizophrenia drug. Also in Chinese population, it was found that the Chinese had about 50% higher plasma concentration than the U.S. non-Asian patients. So when prescribing haloperidol to patients of Asia ancestry, physicians should consider that higher than expected plasma haloperidol concentration and an increased sensitivity to haloperidol may occur. And this
0: was already published in 1980s. So that's quite a few success stories. I hope Nicole had her question answered. Now, I'm glad you brought up the point of ethnic differences, because that'll lead nicely into our next question, which is also from our listeners. And this time it's two of our social media followers, Alexandra and Nikita, who are both interested in the issue of ethnic diversity in clinical trials. All the stories you've described so far have one thing in common. The effects of genetic variants on people's response to drugs was discovered only after the medicine had been placed on the market. But wouldn't it be better if we could learn this information in advance? And so Alexandra and Nikita argue that a cost-effective way to gather pharmacogenetic information before the medicine is placed on the market would be to increase diversity in clinical trials. The problem is that even though trials nowadays are run in lots of different countries, racial and ethnic minorities continue to be severely underrepresented. So their question is, what needs to happen for that to change? How do we increase ethnic diversity in trials?
1: Well, trials are being done in more countries nowadays. And this is because of two factors. The first one is that um, there is a growing shortage of treatment-naive patients. Many patients in the wealthy countries like United States or Western Europe, they have access to medications Outside the clinical trial setting. So there's a shortage of people with a particular condition who are not already taking medications in these wealthy countries. And another factor is um, the economic one the lower cost of uh, hosting clinical trials in Eastern Europe and Asia. But we know that uh, it's not always practical to conduct drug trials in every patient population in the world. So I think one approach is to choose a particular place and increase the participants in that place, for example, Chinese in China, and the number seems uh, increasing already. Another approach is to conduct a sort of uh, bridging studies, ethno bridging studies. Here, a drug that has been assessed in a major clinical trial in Western countries it's then tested on a small number of people from a population of interest to see side effects, appropriate dosing, and so on for that population. And Japan using this approach a lot. Uh, the medication that was tested safe and effective uh, from a global trials that are subsequently tested in Japanese
0: patients. Here's one more listener question Michael asks, although the ultimate goal of pharmacogenomics is to reduce side effects, I imagine monitoring is still important. Is there any difference in how precision treatments are monitored for safety compared to traditional treatments? What are you saying?
1: Well, uh, there are drugs that include detailed um, information in product information on genetic factors and um, you may find three tiers of information. Uh, one is a mandatory, one is a recommendation, strong recommended or weakly recommended, and then just for information. And the follow-up may depend on the level of requirement or recommended screening or testing. For mandatory testing, you may need a lot of uh, evidence and uh, to really see The biomarker is effective and leading to positive results. And uh, just for information, you may need to follow up whether the awareness has been increased. The different levels of recommendation is depending on the strength of association and uh, the support of the usefulness of uh, the genomic biomarkers and um, also the added value of the genetic testing compared with the usual uh, clinical monitoring. It could be necessary to investigate whether a genomic biomarker guide uh, use of a medicinal product has been effective or not, because there are special reasons genomic biomarker may not be effective. For example, if the recommendation is not feasible or not realistic, that. um, You require a genomic testing that may take time for an urgent indication, and genetic method may not be appropriate. If you do not find old variants, then you could not be sure that old patients with uh, variants are identified. And then the message needs to be very clear, to be understandable, and um, how to make a decision. The impact on clinical decision-making should be clear, and also it should be implemented. If you have a very good recommendation, but it's not implemented in clinical record system and the physician are not aware of this, then it's still not used. So
0: it sounds like there's still quite a few hurdles that need to be overcome before genetic profiling can become a standard practice in the clinic. In your opinion, what will it take to achieve true individualized drug therapy? Yeah, that's right. There are different kinds of
1: hurdles. The first hurdle is um, you need good evidence. And to generate good evidence, you may need good clinical trials. And so far, one of the major limitations that has prevented the use of pharmacogenomic testing in clinical setting is the lack of prospective clinical trials for many drugs to demonstrate the usefulness of pharmacogenomic biomarkers in assisting the drug selection and dosing of each individual, and also the extent to which genetic factors are contributing to drug response or toxicity that will not only depend on the gene effect itself, but there are other non-genetic factors such as drug-drug interaction. And another limitation is the insufficient predictability of the pharmacogenomic biomarker test for recommending genotyping-guided dosing. One example is for warfarin. The genetic variants for v and for CYP2C9 have been shown to be associated with the warfarin dosing requirement. However, the randomized clinical trial have not shown Clearly, the advantage of uh, genetic screening compared with the routine monitoring, so you may need to show the added value here. And other hurdles, as already mentioned, you need regulatory labelling to require the recommendation, to require the uh, screening, testing, or recommend testing. And then you need to implement and the awareness, as
0: already mentioned. So there's a lot that remains to be done. And obviously, integrating pharmacogenomics in clinical practice will be a lot easier for some countries than for others. And that's something that our listener Alexandra also asked about. She wonders if pharmacogenomics is even feasible in countries that lack the infrastructure for it. Many low-income countries will not have the funding, the resources or the knowledgeable staff, she says, to carry out genetic screening and post-marketing surveillance in their communities. What would you say to that? This is a very relevant question.
1: In addition to good evidence, regulatory labelling recommendation, the genomic biomarker testing has to be implemented And the challenge in low-income countries with issues of resources, knowledgeable staff, etc., that are well acknowledged. And even in Europe, the situation varies a lot between countries. But the good news is that um, there is some evidence showing that uh, hospitalisation and emergency department visit can be reduced by genotyping elderly polypharmacy patients. And pre-prescription genotyping is uh, cost effective for certain ADRs. So there is a need to increase the awareness, especially for the decision maker to make long-term plans, I think.
0: You have a long-standing interest in pharmacogenomics, obviously, and since 2020, you also chair the Special Interest Group on Pharmacogenomics at ISOP, the International Society of Pharmacovigilance. How is this group helping to advance the science of pharmacogenomics?
1: Well, the pharmacogenomics SIG members all have the special interest and They come from a different continent, different countries. The ISOP created this platform to provide an opportunity for ISOP members interested in pharmacogenomics to share and provide information on relative issues and development and also support pharmacovigilance relevant to medicinal products with Pharmacogenomic Association. So through meetings, training, activities, etc., We have had an activity last year in the Patient Safety Day to spread information and increase the awareness, in particular the um, low-income countries. And
0: finally, what lies ahead? What developments would you like to see in the future of pharmacogenomics?
1: I would like to see more education, increase awareness and information on individuals' genetic status the genotyping results. I would also like to see more research and better design in clinical trials and better labeling with more specific indications and usage guided by pharmacogenomics in subpopulations. And lastly, better implementations of the recommendation
0: for genomic biomarker testing. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me Ying and also for answering our listeners questions. I'm sure they'll be delighted to hear your answers. I wish you all the best in your work. Thanks again. Thank you. That's all for now but we'll be back soon with more conversations on medicine safety. If you'd like to know more about pharmacogenomics or ISOP's special interest group Check out the episode show notes for useful links. If you like our podcast, subscribe to it in your favorite player so you won't miss an episode. And spread the word on social media so other listeners can find us. Apart from these in-depth conversations with experts, we host a series called Uppsala Reports Long Reads, a selection of audio stories from UMC's Pharmacovigilance magazine, so do check that out too. Uppsala Monitoring Centre is on Facebook, LinkedIn and Twitter, and we'd love to hear from you. You can send us comments or suggestions for the show and don't miss the next opportunity to send in questions for the speakers. We'll be advertising that on social. For Drug Safety Matters, I'm Federica Santoro. I'd like to thank Chun Ying Yu for her time, Matthew Barwick for production support, our listeners Nicole, Alexandra, Nikita and Michael for sending in questions and of course you for tuning in. Till next time.